as a follower of Jesus Christ, as someone who believes in God, when, when you're in a conversation or when you're in the netherworld of Facebook debates over faith, when someone says, prove to me that God exists. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you do when someone says, prove to me that God exists, and if you can't, then you are irrational. A lot of times, as followers of Jesus Christ, we look back and we see all that he's done for us and we've got just this truckload of what we feel and think to be evidence. And we just want to dump that truckload of evidence and say, here is what God has done for me and here are the reasons that you can point to outside of any type of experience to say that belief in God, belief in the gospel is not irrational but it is entirely reasonable. But today, I want to suggest something to us based upon so many Bible verses that we really would be here all day long if we went through all of them. But a, a, a teaching, a, an idea that comes to the surface, and the idea is that when people ask you and when they demand evidence, is evidence really the issue at play? And here's what we're going to try to get across this morning. This is in your notes. The, the root or the grounding of atheism is not always intellectual objections, but often the root, the foundation of atheism are moral objections, meaning the reason why many people go to atheism, it's not because they're studying science and science says such and such. It's not because they're into analytic philosophy. It's not that. But the reason why most people, and this is kind of an extreme for many people idea, but what I'm put forward this morning from the Word of God, and we're going to I mean, every one of y'all need, after this sermon, you need to go buy Kroger and buy a pack of Oreos because you're a smart cookie if you can track with all this. But we're going to go through it, all right? Put on the floaties. But here's the idea, that humans are not simply rational beings, but we are rational beings, but we have assumptions, presuppositions, we have emotions, we have past memories. And so when we come into evidence Evidence is not always what makes the final decision. What makes the final decision is what we want to do. Means that you can bring evidence upon top of evidence upon top of evidence, but based on the fact that the Bible says, and I think we can observe this even if we didn't have a page of Scripture, that every single person is a sinner before God, and every single person, every one of us, you and I, have a bent towards self-exaltation and selfishness so that... Even if we were given, I mean, massive loads of evidence, we would still find a way to explain away that evidence because at the root core, nobody wants to turn to God. And a lot of times in our debates, in our writings, in our conversations, we automatically, as followers of Jesus Christ, say, well, let me prove it to you. No, what we're going to look at this morning is why should you have to prove the existence of God? Why shouldn't the atheist have to disprove the existence of God? So you ready? 
Let's strap in, put the floaties on, buy the Oreos. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here is our, uh, we, could, we could call this our bookends verse, verse 14. The natural person, time out. The natural person in the Bible means a man or woman, anyone who has not been saved. It means that the reasoning, functioning, the capacity of the intellect works around self. So a person who doesn't know Jesus, all right? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him. And he, check this out, this is strong. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And we're going to break open this idea more and more throughout this message this morning. But the idea here is that sin has an absolutely devastating effect on our ability to reason properly. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three responses when someone tries to push us into the corner or when they're simply being kind. They're just saying, well, I thought that you're supposed to prove God's existence to me. Here's what we're going to look at. Number one, we are not objective when it comes to evidence. Every single one of us has presuppositions, including myself, and we all naturally, outside of God, oppose God. Number two, we're going to look at demanding that one prove the existence of God is assuming something that you don't have, the intellectual high ground, meaning who says that we have to prove the existence of God for God to be a reasonable belief? Number three, demanding proof when someone says prove to me that is unreasonable and here's the reason we don't do any type of reasoning based upon proofs whether you look at theology philosophy whether you look at um, history whether you look at whether you're going to go where you're going to go eat today what we make our decisions based on is reasonableness is it reasonable to believe in God and still be a rational person so number one let's let's look at the first one we are not objective when it comes to evidence. We all have presuppositions. So here's, here's an idea. Everybody, regardless of what we're arguing about, whether it is football, can we just stop there for just a moment? And we're not going to name any professional NFL teams. When the team that you really don't like does something great play, usually what do we do? We find a way to explain how the refs, right? It's the refs. It's, it's the referees, the umpire, whatever it may be. Because all of us have assumptions. When it comes to politics, even if someone shows us a particular angle of our political beliefs, often we find ways instead of saying, you know what, that's something that I haven't thought about before. Let me look into that. You know what most of us do? We just have a knee-jerk reaction and we'll call the other position, whether, I mean, whatever it may be, socialist or cowboy capitalist. We have, all of us, including myself, we have assumptions. And back in, uh, this is several decades ago, there's a scientist named Thomas Kuhn, and he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he put forward this crazy idea that even scientists have bias. It, people was like, no. Those are the white lab coat wearing arbiters of truth. I mean, there, no, science is a hard, I mean, that's a hard science. That's a hard discipline. That's 
simply, I mean, molecules, no, no scientist would ever give bias research. And Thomas Kuhn, in an academic way, said, put down that crack pipe. And back in, the, in, in that day, the 60s and early, they were like, no, that's it. No, because those guys are, are wanting to find out what is right. And now today in the scientific, I mean, academia all across the board, everybody for the most part will admit, sure, we all have bias. Christians have bias. Because, I mean, for us, we don't walk into a, we don't walk into a conversation saying, well, I want to just be open-minded about how Jesus is not Lord and Savior. We don't do that. And we'll talk about this in the next few weeks. There's a difference between knowing that God exists and showing that God exists. And often for some of us, we have such a real sense that arguments could never take away that God is real. And I was once lost, but man, praise Jesus, I am now found. Like, but it's hard for us to explain that perfectly and succinctly. So just an encouragement as we go into these next few weeks, just because you don't know how to demonstrate the existence of God in some type of theistic or we could say philosophical or, or, or a theological way doesn't mean that you're irrational. It just simply means that there's a difference between knowing and showing. But today we believe across the board that people have bias. So here's where it's going to get really uncomfortable. Let's go to the Bible. And by the way, when we read the scripture and we open it up and really with an open heart seek to find out its meaning, usually it gets uncomfortable before it gets comforting. We are naturally, we're going to look at verses here, we are naturally, you and I, we are naturally opposed to God even though we intuitively know that God exists. So here's the issue. The issue based upon scripture is not evidence. The root issue is sin and pride. Let me say that again. Throughout scripture, the the issue, even though we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, there is evidence, massive evidence. The root issue is not evidence, but the root issue is am I willing to surrender to God? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, the Bible says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 21, the Bible says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he, speaking of God, catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So, so far, what we're seeing is that sin and Satan have the potential and almost the certainty to blind lost people from the gospel. It doesn't make sense. That's why the scripture says that the gospel compared to the wise of this age is foolishness because the wisdom of American culture today and the wisdom of Roman and Greek, wisdom, the, the essence of that when Jesus lived is all about self. 
But Jesus says if you want to find yourself, Luke 9.23, you must die to yourself. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So according to the Bible, the very elementary kindergarten pre-K class of wisdom is the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Romans 1.22, 121 and 22, the Bible says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile or empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What this means is that immoral behavior continually repeated will restrict our ability to reason properly and think properly. One more. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, the Bible says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This is so interesting. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. You see, Scripture says that it's moral issues that come to the forefront far before intellectual issues ever do. And if you're looking for a good read, I'd encourage you to pick up Paul Johnson's book called The Intellectuals. I know it sounds awesome, right? Um, It's interesting, when you study the history of atheism, how the leading atheists in years and centuries past were really not the type of people you'd ever want to party with. Excuse me, fellowship with. See, Baptists have fellowship. Everybody else has parties, right? Like if you wanted to get together a group of people and say, man, let's have a good time, you would not call this group. And for those of you who've taken those classes and read that stuff, or if you've never been exposed to the history of atheism, let me just give you a snippet of the lives of many of the leading atheists in the past. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He sired five illegitimate children and abandoned them to orphanages, which in that day and time certainly, almost certainly meant death. He was intensely vain and wildly irresponsible. Percy Shelley was a chronic swindler with a ferocious temper, also an adulterer who with three different women fathered seven different children who he basically ignored and abandoned one in an orphanage. Karl Marx, the founder of worldwide communism that is responsible for, I mean, incredible numbers of death. Karl Marx hated Jews. He was fiercely anti-Semitic. He was, if we can just say this, uh, he was a bum. Um, He was an absolute bum. If you've read the the history of him, he wouldn't work, but Frederick Engels, his buddy in crime, or uh, we could just say that because communism has killed incredible amounts of people, Engels' father owned a factory where people actually worked. Engels would get the money from the factory to support Marx, who is saying that the system shouldn't support people who actually uh, work. He was unfaithful to his wife. He had an extreme uh, temper. He exploited friends. Leo Tolstoy, the great writer, um, was a chronic gambler and a seducer of women and treated his wife, if we can just say it like this, treated her like garbage. Ernest Hemingway was a pathological liar. Sorry, I love it. Great writing, but let's look at the person's character. 
pathological liar, a misogynistic womanizer, and a self-destructive alcoholic, and probably someone who could be even compared to Billy Graham, the Billy Graham of atheism, Bertrand Russell, who we talked about last week, was a serial adulterer, and he lived to be a very old man, and he was known even in his latter years to be a serial seducer of extremely young women, uh, even in his older age. John Paul Sartre, uh, was known for sexual escapades with his female students who was picked by his lover. What we're going to look at this morning, that's just a few. An idea that I think that we would do well as followers of Christ to understand is that atheism is not just an intellectual movement, but largely it's a smokescreen for immorality. It is a smokescreen. There's big words, massive arguments, books from, I mean, well-known presses. But when you get to the core of asking the person, their heart of hearts, what do you want to do? It's to live in defiance of the moral stipulations of the one true God. And so if I'm an atheist, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to say I want to keep having sex with my girlfriend. I don't say that. I don't say I want to keep using and abusing people. I don't say that. What I say is I have intellectual reservations about the existence of God. And the biblical presuppositions in Genesis 1-1 is that the Bible begins with the presupposition of God. The Bible begins in the beginning, right, God. So the Bible doesn't begin trying to prove the existence of God, although I think that's very legitimate. We'll look at that the next few weeks. But this is something that I think should bother us regardless of which perspective we fall on. When Christians are told that you are irrational and ignorant for believing in the existence of God, even today, well over 80% of the world believes in some type of supernatural reality. One of the early, um, I guess we could say, atheistic proponents, David Hume, even though some people say he was an agnostic, said that it's only the most ignorant and barbarous of peoples. If you dig into atheism, what you will find is there is a high level of ethnocentric arrogance, meaning ignorant people groups from places outside Western Europe, those are the ones who believe in the supernatural. But as far as enlightened white people from Western Europe and the United States, we have a better option, which is to deny that God exists altogether. Here's a question. Should atheists actually rely upon reason? Because often that's the way that it's approached, right? I'm an atheist. I have reasons for my belief. Here's a thought. If God does not exist, then everything that we see, everything that we experience came about as a result of random chance. I mean, it is as random. I mean, it is as random as sixth grade conversations after drinking Monsters, I mean, the whole universe, man, there is no point, no purpose, no design. Like Richard Dawkins says, it's just the, quote, appearance of design. It means that everything that we see, including us, is simply the goo from the zoo to me and you. That's it. If God doesn't exist. So here's the question. Why do atheists rely upon reason? If reason and the human brain came as the result of randomness. You ever thought about that? 
How can I trust my own brain? For some of us, we're like, I don't think I can anyway. But let's just go, 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 go with it. Go with it. Can I even trust my own ability to reason if what I have to reason with is the result of a random explosion? Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So can you get reliable reason from atheism? You see, here's where the atheist is caught in a trap. Because you see, if they're consistent in their atheism, they say all of this came as a result of randomness, but yet they're choosing to rely upon reason, which is based upon a brain that came out of randomness. So how can they even be a thoughtful, rational atheist if all of that is produced from the factory of random? So if God does not exist, this is a good one-liner, we can't trust our ability to reason. Say, we're having this conversation with your friend, co-worker, family member. Say, but can we really put any stock in what either of us even can do with evidence? Here's what C.S. Lewis said. No thought is valid if it can be fully explained as the result of irrational causes. You see, atheism says that everything, including our minds, developed by random chance. Not even theistic evolution saying God guided it. Not even that. But random chance. So how can a random thi- randomly formed thing be a logical processor? So what atheists do is they assume that we can actually know anything. Right? How can we really with confidence know anything if we actually have reason to believe that atheism is true. So if atheism is true, there's no reason, follow with me, to think it's true because our thinking is the result of something that came about through absolute randomness. If atheism is true, there's no reason to think it's true. So if you're in a conversation with someone, and by the way, our goal as followers of Jesus Christ is never to win an argument for argument's sake. Can I get an amen? Our, our goal is never to say, well, I was there at week two and we were talking about properly basic beliefs and presuppositionism. <laughs> and want to beat somebody down with, with, with this stuff. Our goal is to, through the humility of Christ, lead people to Jesus. And if that means doing an argument in a certain way, then for the glory of God, we do that. So here's something that we need to ask our friends before we get to evidence. If you're talking to a person who has concluded that God does not exist, ask them this question. What type of evidence would you accept that would prove God's existence? I mean, are you, are you open to philosophical arguments or scientific arguments? Or have you concluded, based upon your assumptions and your presuppositions, things that you just bring to the table, if you've already concluded that God does not exist and cannot exist, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence I bring, right? Because if you're already there and in your mind God doesn't exist, then are you even open to evidence at all? And that is very helpful to allow people to look within and say, boy, am I that close-minded or am I willing to at least entertain the possibility that there is evidence that points to the existence of God? So number one, we all have presuppositions. We all have assumptions. And number two, when someone demands that we prove the existence of God, they are assuming that they have the intellectual high ground. It's putting the burden of proof on us. So what we should ask is say, well, why do I have to prove God 
to you? Why shouldn't you have to disprove God to me? John Calvin talked about the the sensus divinitatis, which is just a way to say that it's the sense of the divine. It means that every person has this, this, this sense that God actually really exists. It's a properly basic belief. Properly basic beliefs would be stuff like logical and mathematical truths. Why is two plus two four? Like it is. I mean, there's no one who comes to us and say, you need to prove to me, give me arguments on why two plus two is four. Like that's a properly basic belief. Another one would be um, memory, right? We can't absolutely prove that we were not created five minutes ago with the appearance of age, the whole universe, with pre-programmed memories. We can't prove that, but we're entirely rational to believe that we've been here for longer than that. And for some of us, we've been here a little while. Right? You don't need arguments to explain those in order for you to believe those things and be a rational person. Here's something else. I love when this comes up in conversation. When people says that they, th- they say science proves everything. If you can't validate it scientifically, it's not truth. Asterisk, that's not science. That's something called scientism. Scientism is a belief that science explains everything, and that's not science, that's philosophy. But things like ethical beliefs, like let's just do a pop pop, uh, survey here. How many of us believe that what the Nazis did, Joseph Mengele and all of those experiments, how many of us believe that those things were morally wrong and evil? Let Let me see your hands. All right? Can you validate that scientifically you can't because it falls outside of science but there is massive evidence for knowing that those beliefs such as treating people as being made in the image of God that those are correct beliefs and to do what the Nazis did are wrong here's what Alvin Plantinga said he says the atheist must logically demonstrate why belief in God should not be included within properly basic beliefs. In other words, why is belief in God irrational? Like, who says this? Why should we have to give an argument for the existence of God? And here's several reasons why it is rational to believe in God without the necessity of arguments. Number one, very few people have access to these arguments. Most of the people who have lived on planet Earth have not had access to this type of stuff. They hadn't gone to school. They hadn't been to Rocky Mount Baptist Church. Most people have not been able to read, right? All of that. So it also seems that God has given us an awareness of him that's not dependent on theistic beliefs. It's kind of like if children are allowed, if they're nurtured and they're allowed to grow and to flourish, it seems like children naturally have an inclination towards God instead of an inclination towards atheism. And that should cause us to think, what happens when humans are allowed to flourish and to be fed and cared for, to have that loving environment? Where do they tend to? to go, and they almost always go towards believing that there is a God that exists. And something, too, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're not just theists. A theist is a person who believes that there's a God out there, but God could be all sorts of different stuff. I mean, it could be a God like the God of deism who just simply created the world and just sitting back and watching it. 
But as Christians, we don't believe that getting to know God is simply getting to know a scientific theory or an argument. This is good. We get to know a person. And Jesus, when he ascended, he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God to be with you. You see, God is a person. And when we get to know him through prayer, through reading his word, oh, we get to know who he is, not simply facts about him. Some people will say, well, are Christians, are Christians biased? Are they biased? And we say, absolutely. I am biased because there was a day in which God opened the eyes to my heart and he changed me. I believe as a Christian, I believe in natural laws, I believe in gravity, but I'm also open to the possibility of the supernatural. For the atheist is only willing to entertain one of those possibilities. So here's the question, who's open-minded and who's closed-minded? We as Christians don't believe that miracles are just things that randomly happen. We believe that a miracle is a specific, uh, unusual thing that God chooses to do. We believe in gravity. We believe in studying science. We believe in going to school and doing work. But we're open to the possibility of something else to whereas. An atheist, the only game in town is randomness and despair. So finally, number three, when people say, prove to me that God exists, to demand a proof is unreasonable because proofs, when you do any type of study, that's never, that's never the definition of a good argument. The definition of a good argument is what is reasonable. So when they say proofs, <laughs> say, well, how can you prove to me that atheism is true? To be able to really prove atheism, you've got to say there is absolutely no God, right? Like not even an agnostic who says, I, I don't think God exists, but I'm not really sure. It means really <laughs> to have knowledge of every square inch of the known universe, at once, so that we can just like a king or a pope declare there is no God, right? But can any person even come close to a half of a percent of the knowledge that's out there? And I've known some smart people. Man, all of us together, when you just do a basic Google search on something on the internet, it is mind-blowing the amount of knowledge to be had and the discoveries that haven't even been made yet. So who am I? How arrogant would I be to assume to have the right to say with certainty, there is no God? You know, that's not even so much arrogance. That is absolute ignorance. And that's exactly what Romans 1 says. It says they knew that God was there, but because they turned away from him, meaning they rejected the light of God, they rejected the gospel or the general revelation of God, that they became fools, even though they thought that they were wise. John Piper said it like this. He was giving a sermon one time. He said, what will God say? On that day for the atheists who don't, don't repent. And we pray that God grants salvation to atheists. Amen? And we love atheists. That's the reason why we're talking about this stuff. 
But what's it going to be like? I mean, when you really, and I can't, I can't wait for these next few weeks. We're going to look at some really cool stuff from, I mean, from science and DNA and cosmology and history that just leads me to once again say, you know what? I got saved as a 19-year-old because I knew that I was guilty before God. But God in his graciousness has given all of this evidence after the fact that I can have confidence that it's not just a heart thing. It's a head thing too. But what's God going to do? When unrepentant atheists stand before him, these are ones who have explained things away like DNA and said there is no God. He said the heavens will shake with the laughter of God. Because to say that God does not exist, not even to go where agnostics to go say, I don't, I don't think he does, but I'm, I'm, I'm maintaining a possibility that there may be evidence, but to say God does not exist, he said it is just absolutely preposterous. And that's exactly what Psalm 2 says. It says that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. For those who say we're going to throw off the reign of God and we're going to replace him with something else. So here's the question. What is faith? If all of us have presuppositions and bias... Even though Christians are open to the possibilities where atheists are closed-minded, I think it's very helpful to think about the question, what is faith? You know, for some people we say, and this, we're going to hopefully correct this if this is in our church, we say, well, there's science, and there's history, and there's philosophy, and then there's faith. Like the movie Contact, where there's the people of science, and the people who don't study anything, and they just have almost just like a... They just close their eyes and leap off a mountain. That's not faith. What faith is, is it's a response to what you believe. Faith is a response. And that's When you really look at faith in Scripture, it is a response to what you believe. Faith is a gift from God, and it's how we respond to what we would believe about God. It's kind of like if we believe all of this stuff. We believe that the Bible is God's word. We believe that the Bible has truths. We believe that God exists. Jesus was raised from the dead. And we believe that intellectually. But I never place my faith in the God who gives evidence that I've never exercised faith. You see, evidence can lead us to water, but it can't make us drink. That's where, going back to the beginning of this message, that it's not just an intellectual issue. It's not just an issue with evidence. The issue is pride. For many people today, the holdup for them is not, it's not Euthyphro's dilemma. It's not scientific stuff. It's the issue of, I know I drink too much and I'm not ready to give that to God. For a lot of people, it's, it's, not, it's not a philosophical abstract it's the issue that I'm very bitter at what someone did to me years ago, and I know that if I give my life to Christ, I'm going to have to work through that bitterness. I'm going to have to for, for, forgive. Can't even say the word. Forgive. What a difficult, impossible concept for a person who doesn't know Jesus. And these things are what hold us back more times than not from truly placing faith in Jesus Christ. But here's what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It means that God is the one who has created us and God is the one who is willing to redeem us. And I think it's high time that we in the church and across our culture stop throwing up intellectual smoke screens 
And like a, a man years ago when someone said that they didn't believe in the resurrection, you know how he responded? He said, I don't believe in the resurrection. Dead men don't rise. There's no way that you can place your faith on something that happened that long ago. He didn't go to evidence. You know what he said? He said, what sin are you unwilling to give up? What sin are you unwilling to give up? In the weeks to come, we're going to entertain the evidence. We're going to talk about all that. But I think before we do that, we just need to be really real. And the reason why some of us who follow Jesus are not where we should be, it's not because of intellectual reasons. It's not because of the structure of this church. It's not because of some Bible verse that we may twist or misunderstand. But it's an issue of us not wanting to give up what Christ says to give up for something so much greater.